to another edition of Destination Annapolis. I'm your host, Susan Seifried, with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County, and I'm happy to have as my guest today, Jay Ernest Green, Artistic Director for Live Arts Maryland in Annapolis. Welcome, Ernie. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You are at the helm of a dynamic organization that encompasses three beloved performing arts groups in Annapolis. Can you tell our listeners how Live Arts Maryland first got started? Well, Live Arts Maryland began its its life as uh, an organization that was known as uh, the Annapolis Choral Society. And then that changed very quickly after its founding into the Annapolis Chorale, which the is still sort of the engine of this entire organization. The Annapolis Chorale is still in business and still is the sort of the driving force of Live Arts Maryland. Um, we, we're not entirely sure of what year it was founded because there were several iterations in people's living rooms and, and upstairs in one of the historic buildings uh, in downtown Annapolis. But um, 1972 is uh, given as the, the year that, that this organization was founded. So we're coming up on, on 50 years of, uh, of music making in Annapolis. And over the years, um, various pieces of, of the puzzle have been added to it. Uh, the, the chamber chorus of the chorale, which is drawn from the full chorus. When I first came to Annapolis, the chorale was, I think it was 54 singers. I always seem to remember that number. Uh, now the chorale numbers close to 175. Uh, right now with COVID, we're singing with fewer uh, singers. Um, and in the late 1980s, we formalized the Annapolis Chamber Orchestra, which had always been a part of programs with the chorale, but had never really been formalized. It was a little bit, um, a little bit catch as can with the players who were there or who weren't there. And so we created a little structure for that organization. And in subsequent years, we've we've added programming and gone from two programs a year to um seven uh main stage performances and dozens and dozens and dozens of smaller performances at St. Anne's now at the Live Arts Studio at the mall. Uh so we've really grown enormously over those uh those years and we're we're sort of in our next phase. This is our next chapter. You mentioned it got started around 1972-ish and you You've been on board for much of the ride. You came aboard yeah. in the mid '80s. I came on in the mid '80s, and um, and I was um, I was planning on staying, you know, four or five years. Um, I actually, when I started here, I took over a similar group in uh, uh, in Laurel, and I was also doing the uh, the summer operetta in Baltimore. And I was doing the things that, that a young musician does. You, you put 55 things together and to make one salary and you hope that it sticks. And so I did that for a long time. And I was also conducting a lot in Brazil. And I'd actually been offered a, uh, uh, a, a the, the directorship of an orchestra in Brasilia. And the way that, that things worked with that orchestra, it was you'd go there during the dry season and the orchestra played inside, outside, all over the place. It was a really wonderful orchestra. Um, and um, then the economy in Brazil crashed, completely crashed. 
um, and the orchestra was it disappeared almost overnight. And uh, so instead of going there for six months of the year and coming back or four months of the year and coming back or even a month, um, it's just that sort of uh, sort of changed things for me. And at the same time, I was also putting down serious roots in Annapolis. I'd actually um, when I, I was born in Baltimore and I actually I grew up in Cleveland, but I actually used to spend my summers in Annapolis or or not not all of them, but but a good part of them in Annapolis because I had an aunt and uncle that lived in Bay Ridge and we would come here. And, and so Annapolis was someplace that I really had a great affection for. And it's just one of those odd things that I ended up here. Well, was that among the reasons you ended up at Peabody? The reason I ended up at Peabody was sort of a, a sort of an, it's sort of an, well, it's interesting to me. Um, I was uh, a brass, I was a trombone major uh, as do, pursuing my Bachelor of Music in Performance at uh, the University of Toledo, which was a typical Midwestern university with a big brass program. And um, at some point during my, my time there, I became very curious about conducting. And at one point, I started uh, studying with the music director of the Toledo Symphony, who was also the principal conductor of the Royal Ballet uh, at Covent, or he was one of the conductors with the Royal Ballet at Covent Garden. And he also in Canada did the uh, Edmonton Symphony, I think. Um, and I started studying with him. And when I got ready to audition for conducting programs, I um, Peabody was really based on his recommendation and other people who I trusted was where they told me I should go. And so I literally, uh, and quite foolishly, frankly, put all of my eggs in the Peabody basket. And thankfully I got accepted because I had cut my lifelines to every other audition I was taking. And if I hadn't gotten into Peabody, I don't know what I would be doing right now, but I got in and I did my master's and doctoral work there. And, uh, and I, when I was sort of in the midst of grad school, uh, I was offered this job to come here. So then when you got out of Peabody, you transitioned right into working with the Annapolis Corral, correct? Yeah, I did. And I, I had, a, I had a several, um, I had several other, um, several other uh, groups that I directed. I had another group I had, that was the Laurel Oratorio Society uh, in Laurel, Maryland. I did the Young Victorian Theater Company in Baltimore. And I, at that time, I was teaching uh, a lot. I was teaching at Villa Julie College, which is now Stevenson University. And I taught at Loyola. I actually stopped teaching for many years. And I've actually just gone back within the last six years um, as a visiting uh, professor at uh, Washington College. So I've sort of, I'm going back to my roots I think in that, in that regard, as a young performer, you, you really put a lot of little things together and you, 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 you're learning your craft. I mean, that's sort of the way that it was done for generations and generations. Um, now I think, you know, conductors come out of uh, music schools or conservatories and they, they sort of come out and sort of pop right into uh, leadership positions. And I, you know, I think there's something to be said for that as well, but I really, think the idea of learning your craft and trying things and really, you know, burning through repertoire at a, at a young age is, is really very important. Can you talk a little bit about those building blocks that have led to Live Arts Maryland? Well, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is sort of interesting about this is that the organization itself 
um, not just because of happenstance, but because I, along with our board of directors and volunteers and other people, we've been able to sort of let the organization reinvent itself every so often. And so you can, I can look at the history of the corral in the time that I've been here, and I can point to several very distinct periods of time in the organization's uh, growth. And in some cases, um, it's been, the growth has been sort of an extension of what went before. In other cases, it really has been um, sort of a, it's, it's almost like it's a brand new organization. It's like we took a break at the end of May when we finished our last concert of the year, and we came back in September, and it was a whole new thing. Um, not necessarily for the audience all the time, because one of the things we always try to keep um, tabs on is, is making sure that um, the things that the audience likes and is comfortable with and is familiar with stay the way they are in some way or another, so that they there's always a sense of comfort with, um, you know, on their part, so that they can, um, you know, they feel like they're not, we're not switching gears on them all the time. So even as we've reinvented ourselves, we've kept things familiar for the audience and the patrons, because that's an important thing to do. Well, you perform at various venues, one of them being Marilyn Hall for the Creative Arts. What mm -hmm. can audiences mm -hmm. expect at Marilyn Hall from Live Arts Marilyn? Well, this is actually a really good question, Susan, because coming out of COVID, um, this is all, you know, this is all, you know, sort of like, I feel like we're on one of those old maps from uh, the Middle Ages or, you know, maybe the beginning of the Renaissance where you get to the edge of the map and they don't know what's there and they say, here be dragons. We are definitely in here be dragons because we simply don't know. We don't know. Um, we don't know what audience capacity is going to be. Um, audience, uh, we don't, we're not even sure what the audience is going to be comfortable with. We do surveys and we check. But I think the most important part of this for us is that we are, uh, we're really doing our, our level best to continue to program in ways that the audience finds engaging and compelling. Um, and we are, uh, we're trying to be creative about how we use the space. So for instance, this weekend, we're doing the Mozart Requiem. And because the numbers, the case rate numbers are still up there in Maryland, we are doing it outside under the stars. So we're doing Mozart under the stars and, you know, it's Mozart. It's nice weather, we hope. Uh, what could be better? Um we were intending to do it inside, but our our sort of operating ethos right now is we're going to take what we get and we're going to make it work. So if we can be inside, we're going to find a way to do it safely and keep the artistic per performance and the artistic level high. And if we have to be somewhere else outside, split the group, we're going to do it and keep the artistic level high. But pre-COVID, in terms of performances at Maryland Hall, what did you try to deliver? What did you deliver? Well, mostly what we did, we have two venues that we really, pre-COVID, we have two venues that we really used both very vigorously, Maryland Hall being the first. And at Maryland Hall, we really focused on big choral orchestral works, big chunks of the repertoire, 
that used orchestra, soloist, big chorus. As I said, I think our chorus was uh, 175 people, 170, 175. That's a big chorus, and it's a huge sound. I mean, it when it comes off the stage, it's like a wall of sound, and uh, it's it's glorious. You can't hear that kind of sound and not be absolutely moved. Um, and so we really focused on that that aspect of the repertoire, and it was. Um, it was that was sort of our bread and butter for a long time. At St. Anne's, we would do things that were smaller, smaller things that used a smaller orchestra, concentrating on works that were either smaller, uh, smaller works for uh, orchestra and chorus, where we could use choruses of thirty to forty, and an orchestra of fifteen to twenty-five, as opposed to twenty-five to forty-five. Um, and the idea was that we really focused on different segments of the repertoire um, so that the audience could, they could hear one type of thing at Maryland Hall and they could hear something else at Maryland Hall uh, at St. Anne's. So, and for instance, we didn't, um, we would do Broadway, uh, Broadway shows at Maryland Hall. We're not going to do Kiss Me Kate at St. Anne's. It doesn't fit. So we really would tailor programming to fit the venue. And we, we really, we, we worked that way very successfully for many years. Um, and then in this last, um, the, the last six, seven or eight months, well, actually it's eight months by now, golly. Um, we, uh, we, took, uh, we took possession of a space at the Annapolis Mall, the Westfield Mall, and have begun doing other programming that we were kind of shoehorning into other places because we didn't really have a place. Now we have a place um, that we, uh, that we can do. We would, we, for instance, we would bring, uh, we brought, uh, we bring people who are Broadway singers and dancers down on a regular basis for our Broadway and concert. Um, people like Matt Gibson, Cody Williams. Um, we had Rebecca Luker who uh, sadly passed away um, uh, within the last year. And uh, but Rebecca came down for uh, to do a one night cabaret for us. We did it at Maryland Hall and we really tried to find ways to make that cavernous audience feel intimate. So we blocked off the back chunks of seats and we didn't sell them. We kept the audience small because we wanted that experience. So a lot of what we do, Susan, is focused on what's the experience when you come in and sit down, what is the experience that you are having or going to have um, when you come in? Well, let's talk about the studio. I know the community is really excited that there you are so accessible at Westfield Annapolis. Our first official performance was in June. Um, we have, uh, we're actually kind of using the space at the mall, uh, the studio, the live art studio in a number of different ways. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we are putting up uh, small concerts, again, things that might fit other places, but they're perfect there. So we've had everything from jazz concerts that are pop-up concerts to chamber music. Uh, we did had a concert that was all French repertoire, Bizet, WC with a, uh, a piano trio that was just delightful. We've had uh, a couple of cabarets by... Uh, people like Bernard Dodson, who was in the original cast of Ragtime and Sweet Smell of Success on Broadway. Um, Catherine Riddle, who is a local regional theater 
favorite who um, has really did a wonderful cabaret. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we have Reyesa Katona Bennett coming to the studio to do a cabaret. She was Christine on Broadway for years. Um, and so we're bringing that type of thing in. And just because we have fun doing it, we've had a couple of, of, of rock band, jam band pop-ups where we have all of, all of us who are uh, aging rock. Well, actually, I'm the only aging rocker uh, in this group. The, everybody else in the band is, um, is a kid, and I'm, they let me come hang with them for a little bit. We have a, a wonderful singer-songwriter uh, cabaret with an independent songwriter uh, from this area uh, who I actually knew as a student at Washington College, who now has carved out a, a niche in the um, the independent singer-songwriter world, and she's coming to do one next week. So really, what I see, the, the programming options at the studio are limitless. We had a rehearsal last night with the Annapolis Chamber Orchestra and our soloist for the Mozart Requiem in the studio. And while we were recording, this adorable little girl and her father wanted to look in the door, and they came in and watched the rehearsal for a little bit, and the little girl was dancing and twirling while we were playing Mozart. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. It's, it's about creating access and an open door for people to come in. Because, um, you know, as, we, as we've talked about before, I truly believe that not everybody has the ability to go and sit for two and a half hours for a traditional concert. As a matter of fact, I, actually orchestra concerts and most concerts are, are getting shorter and shorter because that, that that's just, it's a bridge too far. And, you know, I feel like for the 10 minutes that that father and his daughter were in there listening to Mozart, um, I kind of hope that maybe we made their day, we made them smile. And by doing that, um, who knows, maybe, maybe they'll be back to hear something else or do something else. And if they're not, maybe we change their lives just a little bit with that one thing. I think if you have five minutes and you can listen to music and do nothing else for five minutes, you're ahead of the game. Well, I think it's great for our listeners to hear today that they're welcome to come in for five minutes or 10 minutes, that they Absolutely. don't have to plan, that they don't have to plan to spend an hour to sit through a whole performance, and that you, in fact, welcome people to come to your rehearsals and put a sandwich board outside, letting people know, come in, come in. For me, if you want to come hang out at a rehearsal and you want to listen for a half an hour, 45 minutes, do it. Uh, as long as it's not, as long as you're not, you know, eating a, a hot pastrami sandwich uh, and not offering me any, um, you know, I'm fine with it because music and, and doing music at, at a very basic level should be interactive. It should not be something where we set barriers that you have to jump over. You have to wear these clothes when you go to a concert. You have to act this way. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, Susan, the classical music world, and I don't even like using that term. I'd rather think of it as maybe art music or the concert world. Um, we are the side of the music world that has these, these fences to jump over. If you look at the popular music world, they don't have any of these things. They have none of these barriers. You buy a ticket, you go in, you sit down, you listen, and it's it's completely engaging. I don't think it's a coincidence that those 
those uh, aspects of the, the 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 popular music world are doing better than the concert music world because the barriers are down. Well, your open door policy certainly seems to be a great way to groom future lovers of music. Tell me about those audiences. Who are they? Everybody? Well, what's what's real? <laughs> this is not something I, I, I could have predicted. I this I have to be honest with you. This what I'm about to tell you caught me completely by surprise. Prize. Um, we um, when we started doing this, and we looked at the programming, we had. A, a musical theater cabaret. We had a chamber music concert with a piano trio, classical, you know, chamber music. We had a kind of a rock band show. We had a Broadway cabaret with a big Broadway star. Um, and we had a lot of little odds and ends in there as well. If you ask me, when we started this, what the audience would look like, I would have said, oh, well, I'm going to guess we're going to draw this demographic for this concert and this demographic for this concert, and they're all going to be separate. Not, not. What's really been interesting is we've had people um, who are people I never in a million years would have thought would go to a, a pop-up rock band, jam band concert playing Doobie Brothers covers and Beatles covers. That was a pop-up concert. I mean, I looked at the audience and half of the audience was as old as Keith Richards, who's not young. And it surprised me because I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a really young crowd. And there were young people there. And then some of the concerts that I thought, oh, this is going to be very conservative. This is going to be our traditional concert audience. Um, and I'm probably thinking it's going to skew, you know, 55, 60 up. Um, and, and there were high school kids and college kids from St. There were people coming who was surprised me. So what we're kind of thinking is happening with this space is that it's the experience of having a venue where you can come sit down, have a glass of wine, um, Maybe on some concerts, we even have uh, little cheese boards you can sit there and nibble on while you listen. And you're not sitting in a seat. We don't turn the lights off on you and tell you to sit down and shut up. We let you come in. You can get up and get another glass of wine, which is great. And we've seen a change in the audience. It's been a real shift in the audience. Now, truth be told, a lot of what we're doing allows us to have that flexibility. So one of the things that we've started to discover with the studio space is that we're, we're finding that our audience is, is really engaged in the experience that we bring. It's not just about programming. It's not just about I'm coming to hear this particular piece or this particular concert. It might be, but the experience of being able to go and sit and listen to live music in a place that is um, that you feel comfortable in. You, you don't feel like you have to act as perfectly um, or you're going to get a nasty look. Um, so that's kind of where we're, we're heading with this. We actually have already been flipping uh, the room around, how we set it up. Last night, for instance, when we 
we had the orchestra in uh, for the rehearsal for the, the concert that's this Saturday night. We actually flipped the room around uh, in the opposite direction from what we normally do. And we did that in, in part, it was a way for us to try a slightly different setup. Um, but you know, the mall has been really good about working with us on our, our using spaces in the mall itself, not just this space, but other spaces in the mall in a very flexible way. And um, so far, uh, I'm waiting for them to, to look at me and say, are you out of your mind? Um, but every time I've gone to them with something and said, um, you know, here's what I want to do. They look at us and say, okay, let's give it a try, which is great because when you think about it, there's a lot of space there. I mean, there's a lot of space and we keep, um, we keep thinking about ways to, to do things. We are, uh, for instance, we are hosting an event in December called Tuba Christmas, which is a place where um, 50 to 100 tuba players come and they play Christmas carols. And it's a fundraiser for the Harvey Phillips Foundation. Harvey was uh, a great teacher of uh, tuba players, and he has a scholarship fund. And every year there are tuba Christmas events all across the country. This year we are hosting tuba Christmas at the mall. And I'm telling you what, if you've never seen 50 to hundred tuba players in one place playing a little town of Bethlehem, you have not lived because it is a sound like you can't believe. And so we're really lucky that, that when we go to the mall and we say, Hey, we're going to do this. What do you think? Their first response is, okay, let's do it. And so that's really been, that's really been great. Um, and, and for us, um, it means that we have lots of options in terms of what we can do with the, with the, with the creative uh, process. So how can everybody keep track of all these great things? I think the best way to do it is, uh, and this is a shameless plug, but I think the best way to do it is to go to our website, which is brand new, uh, just went up a day ago, and actually we're still editing pages and things like that. But the contact page is actually up and functioning. And if you go to liveartsmaryland.org, and you can even go to liveartsmd.org, it'll they'll both take you there, um, and go to uh, the find the contact page. I think it's under About Us or something like that. And if you um, if you go there and you can you sign up and we'll put you on our, our email list and you'll get weekly emails about what's going on in the studio. You'll hear about the cabarets. You'll hear about our concerts at Maryland Hall. You'll hear about the Bach Plus performances at St. Anne's. We have a, um, a Bach Plus event at St. Anne's that's going to be woven into the 530 Sunday evening service on November 7th. And then on the 11th of November, we're going to do a concert with the Bach Plus Consort at St. Anne's. So it's um, um, you can find information about that there. It's really going to be a really interesting concert. We're sort of uh, uh, a lot of times our Bach Plus concerts, we try to find pieces of music and try to find the common thread between this piece and this piece and draw a line so we can all we can the audience along with us can go there and figure it out. It's kind of like a little musical uh, hide and seek. Um, and so those concerts are always very fun. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're an hour, hour and 10 minutes long. 
They're super casual, you know, depending upon what we're feeling like, we may talk a little bit and tell you what's going on and why we like the, why we thought of this connection. Um, we might just, um, walk in, sit down and play and let you listen and then talk after. Um, it's totally, uh, it's very spontaneous, um, which I like and which Larry Molinaro, who works on them with me, likes. Uh, it makes the production team a little crazy sometimes because they don't know if we're going to talk and we like to keep them on, our to- on their toes. Well, our listeners might want to know that the performers at Bach Plus, they're all professional performers oh, yeah. that you bring in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you with Live Arts Maryland just have the whole spectrum between right. professional to volunteer right. and it all kind of meshes together. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things, you know, when we talk about the, in the music world, there is um, and, and the performing world in general, there is this sort of automatic assumption that if everything, if, if it's professional, it has to be better. Or if it's amateurs and volunteers, it can't possibly be as good. Um, in reality, um, some of the finest performances I have ever seen uh, with a chorus have been uh, with a volunteer chorus uh, or um, have been at a community theater. I, I have a friend that just did a production at a community theater. It was absolutely stunning. Um, and so the, the, the special sauce to me is in figuring out a way to, to, to sort of weave together the worlds of professional artists, professional performers with the amateurs, the volunteers, because the volunteers and the ones who do it simply because they love to do it and they feel like they have to do it. It's part of who they are. Um, they bring something to the table that's undeniable. And so I think, um, I think that's, that's kind of the, the, for me, that's the, that's the secret ingredient in the recipe. So I'm jumping back to the studio because we talked about visiting your website and they can see what's going on, but I'm thinking people who are walking through the mall are going to look in and see something happening and want to come in. You are consciously going to be inviting anybody and everybody from the mall who wants to come. Yeah, we, to- we, yeah, yeah. We want this to be something where people feel like they can come in and engage with us. And, you know, truthfully, it, you know, we're not always rehearsing in there all day long. We, you know, we're most of our rehearsals right now are at night. Um, some of them are late at, you know, in the afternoons, but you know, we, my feeling is if there's a rehearsal going on, if there's something going on in the studio, I want people to be able to come in and check it out. Um, I also want them at some point to come back and buy a ticket, but the, you know, the first, the gateway, the gateway is come in, see what we do, you know, see, see if you like it. You know, this is sort of a test drive. It's and it's a test drive for us too. So I think those things are are things that are um, that are that are really important. And as you invite people to come in, you're also going out out into the mall, as you said, with some big things coming up with the tubas and other things. Right. Where you're going out beyond the walls of Westfield Annapolis and beyond. Oh, yeah. So let's hear about that. We always do run out or outreach programming all over the place. That's something that we've done since I came here in 1985. We, um, as a matter of fact, the first 
the first I, we, we used to we used to joke about this when I was um, first here. We um, uh, we we do we we had years where we paid for all sorts of things by going and singing Christmas carols all through December. I mean, we had we had Saturdays where we would start at 10 a.m. up and down Main Street, and we would go to um, Zachary's Jewelers, and we would go to the Lowe's Annapolis, and we'd come back and we would do historic ends of Annapolis, and we would and we literally we would be up and down Main Street and all over town. Uh, we had. Um, um, you know, we would, we had another, we would have another day of the week where we would sing at parole before it was parole. This is in the old days when Magruder's was still there and we'd go sing in the produce department at Magruder's and then we'd sing at Sears or someplace. And we, we literally paid our, our bills by singing all over the place over the years that's evolved. We now are doing, we're putting, uh, programming and content at the mall, uh, the Westfield at Montgomery. We also have done things in Chestertown at Washington College uh, in a large part because I'm on the faculty there now. Um, we do things in Baltimore for uh, many years. We did a fundraiser every December for the uh, Beans and Bread Soup Kitchen. And we uh, uh, we, uh, we still do a lot of outreach programming. So we're going east towards the Eastern shore. We're going north into Baltimore. We're going west towards, uh, Frederick, Westminster, that area with programs. And we're going west towards Montgomery mall. And then we, every now and then we go south too, into, uh, uh Southern Anne Arundel County. And all of these things are being put together, rehearsed, prepared, and tried out for a first performance at the studio. So it, it's, you know, we're, we're actually right now working on the schedule to put some holiday programs together, which we'll rehearse, put together, and then do at the studio. We'll do one night at the studio, and then we're going to go across the bridge to the Eastern shore. And then we're going out towards Montgomery, and then we're going to take the same thing. So it all begins with this place where we bring everybody together to rehearse and prepare. And the whole philosophy of being out and about with your music is, hey, listen to beautiful music, you'll get hooked. Right. Yeah. Listen to beautiful exactly. music, it'll change your life. Exactly. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing like hearing this stuff live. I mean, there absolutely is not. And that's something that sometimes gets uh, kind of lost in the shuffle because people don't, they don't really... You know, we're so used to listening to things on CDs or on, you know, YouTube. And that, those are great. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Those are great. But there is nothing like hearing it live. Last night, I had choristers who came to the orchestra rehearsal, and they, they were at, there at the beginning to help us check in the orchestra and make sure that everybody was, was you know, okay, because it's a new space for the orchestra. And they, they, we were done with that check-in process by 7.10, 7.15. There was absolutely no reason for them to stay. They stayed until the rehearsal ended at 10 because they were so caught up in hearing the orchestra and the soloists making music live. They didn't want to leave, you know. They, they could have left at 7.10. They stayed until 10 p.m. Um, and that says something about the power of hearing it live. There's really nothing like it. 
Well, I think of you because you go out and about yourself and do a lot of guest conducting in a lot of places that I want to hear about. Uh, But also, I guess that's a source of inspiration that you bring back to Live Arts Maryland as well. It, it really is. Over the, the course of my career, I've had actually a very, um, a very active uh, guest conducting schedule, which is nice. Um, it's um, it, years ago, I, I did mostly, um, I did mostly opera. Uh, I, I get was a, I guess conduct, would guest conduct for opera companies, uh, large and small all over the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and I, I did that for many years. Um, and then um, over, I would say, probably beginning around 2002, I think. Uh, so it's going on 20 years now. I, my work started shifting. I did a lot of symphony uh, and chamber orchestra conducting too. But, but it really, my work has really shifted into the symphony pops uh, realm. And um, so now I, I, I do a lot of, of guest conducting with symphonies doing Pops programming, uh, which I did before, but but most of my guest conducting now is Symphony Pops. I actually love it. You get to work with wonderful people who are uh, not necessarily symphony people, and that's what makes it wonderful because I get to sort of be the 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 person that is the the go between the nexus between their world and the symphony orchestra world, and it's really fun. It's really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the people and places you'll be working with when things do open up a little more? Sure, sure. I um, I actually um, several years ago I be I began working with um, with Paul Schaefer, David Letterman's uh, music director for many many years, and I worked on uh, putting a, a symphony pops program that Paul does, um, and we've uh, we actually I'm just I just and got a call that Long Beach, which is where we're supposed to be doing the next one, just came back. We just got uh, rescheduled, which is great. And we also work with uh, Valerie Simpson, who was married to Nick Ashford, who was half of the writing team of Ashford and Simpson, who wrote songs like um, uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, You're All I Need to Get By, Valerie wrote I'm Every Woman. You know, she is a, a, an R&B legend and working with Paul and Valerie is just, it's just so much fun uh, because, you know, you get to, to work with just amazing musicians that are from Paul's band, uh, people like Clint DeGann and Felicia Collins and Frankie Centeno and, um, you know, uh, Paul Carroll, these guys are so great. And so then you put them in the middle of an orchestra and it's just like, you know, it's just like crazy, crazy, crazy. So we all have a good time doing that. And I think, um, so I've got that coming up. I'm doing uh, a new production with the Toledo Opera next year. Uh, got pushed off a year, two years because of COVID. And then uh, um, uh, Paul and I have a, a couple of other concerts that are getting rescheduled coming up. So those are, those are that's sort of the thumbnail of what I'm doing. And you're enriched by all these experiences and these encounters and these musical opportunities. And then you bring all of that inspiration back to Annapolis. It just is a big give and take, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's everything I do somewhere else finds its way back here. Everything I do here finds its way into that. Um, It's, um, 
you know, I'm one of these people that believes that cross-pollination is incredibly important. Is there anything else, Ernie? I think we've pretty much covered it. I think this has been a, a wonderful interview. Thank you so much. Any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yes. I say this all the time. Go see a ballet, a play, a musical, a concert. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter whether it's at the Kennedy Center or in the center of the town square. Go see something live. Being a part of that is essential in order for the arts to survive. And everybody's life is better when we see live performances. So go see something live. Well, thank you again, Ernie, for joining me today and for letting our listeners know how setting aside even 10 minutes to enjoy beautiful music can be the start of a life-changing experience that could impact generations to come. My guest has been Jay Ernest Green, Artistic Director for Live Arts Maryland in Annapolis. Until next time, I'm Susan Seifried with Visit Annapolis and Anne Arundel County for Destination Annapolis. (laughs) 